how are y'all doing? Uh, appreciate y'all joining us on this Tuesday night. Um, my name is Trayvon. If you haven't met me, I'm the young adult men's director here. Um, and to start off, I guess I feel the need to introduce myself as I've been gone. I haven't been on this stage in over a year. And I feel like it's important to let you know kind of where I've been. Um, and so for starters, last year was probably the roughest year of my life. Uh, it started off, I had a friend back home who was uh, killed, and for the first time in my life, it really uh, struck my emotions. And so I actually got into counseling and had to start navigating that, of just where to put that. And then not too soon afterwards, I uh, had to deal with a, a personal family issue uh, that was very public back home. And so I had to go home and kind of navigate that. And again, I just feel this wrestling of all the while I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord and I feel like I'm just going through it. And so fast forward through that, about a couple weeks later, um, my grandfather got sick suddenly. And what was supposed to be a routine hospital checkup turned into us finding out he had colon cancer and I only had about a week with him. And so I had an emergency call, uh, told the staff and I had to come go home to Louisiana and deal with it. And so at this point, by the time we get to August, it's just been a year. And I'm so thankful for the staff and the volunteers here who just walk with me beside that. But then a couple months later in October, when I finally felt like I got back to it, and ironically, it was a week before I was supposed to preach another message, um, I was in a terrible car accident. I was leaving a charity golf tournament and in the blink of an eye, a car came over the middle line and hit me with uh, head on. And I woke up on the side of the road, uh, confused and just frustrated. Um, as I got shipped off in the ambulance, I made it to the hospital. And there is when we found out that I had tore multiple uh, ligaments in my shoulder. As well, I ended up fracturing my back in 10 different spots. And for me, it began what was probably the longest desert season of my life. Um, the doctor told me initially, I don't understand how you're alive. Because with a head-on collision, he says, everything's supposed to be in your neck, and all of my fractures were in my mid-back and my lower back. And so just in that, uh, I can see God's protection over me. But it didn't mean that I wasn't gonna go through the storm. And so for the next couple months, I was isolated at home aside from a couple visits. Uh, I was forced to have to learn how to live my life at a different pace. I am one of those people, anyone who knows me will tell you I am go, go, go. And for the first time in my life, I felt the Lord tell me, you're gonna sit here and you're gonna learn. And I'm so thankful that that time happened. And it sounds crazy to say, but during it, I wrestled with God so much. One of my biggest struggles is that I go, 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 and I, I've always said, like, God, if I ever had the chance to just take some time to myself, I'd devote it to you. And I'm not too proud to tell you in the first two weeks, all I did was binge watch Game of Thrones and sit there and pout. It, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of praising the Lord in it. But then I remember immediately after I got to the end of it, just this conviction of Trayvon, you've always said how you don't have time. I set aside time for you and you still don't use it. And so it was a growth uh, moment for me. And then a couple weeks later, I'm sitting in a back brace and I remember I showed up to the office the first day they released me to drive and I was like, all right, what can I do? And Andy politely just told me, you know what, take care of yourself. And again, I was convicted in the fact that I didn't show up because I wanted to be used. 
I showed up because I needed to feel like I was needed. And again, it was just humbling. And so for the next couple months, God just took me through a season where he really just worked in my life. And I just wanted to share that with you, one, because through it, I said it, once I make it through this, I'm going to tell everyone because God is still a God who does healings. Like when I say that I wasn't supposed to be in the position I am in now, seven months ago, there was no hope for me to be right here. I had a doctor that told me I'm going to have surgery and not do any of it. And it ended up, I was in a back brace for several months and then he slowly just began to heal me. But then I also got to see the miraculous thing of God just repositioning my heart for ministry. I've done it full time for the last eight years and I didn't know how much I needed rest to make this feel special again. And so I just wanna pause and take in this moment because I didn't know that it was gonna happen again. And I'm so happy that I get to share this with y'all. And so with that being said, tonight we're going to go into uh, part two of our series of Friend of Sinners. And last week, Andy did an amazing job on just talking through Zacchaeus. He was the tax collector who he made his living off of taking advantage of others financially. And then we see in one encounter with Jesus, his entire life is transformed. We see him take that moment and just walk forward in forgiveness. He gives back more than half of what he took. And then he walks in this freedom. And so as I got the opportunity to just sit there, it was like, who am I going to talk about? Who else is a friend of Jesus that was a sinner? And it's not hard. That's everyone. But to me, I immediately went to one of the disciples. And for me, I landed on Peter. And Peter is someone that I've always felt like I could relate to. Peter has a big mouth that no one to shut it. Uh, my mom will definitely tell you that's me. Uh, I talk before I act. Um, but more than anything, we see that Peter gets to wrestle between being so spirit led and sometimes being willing to do any and everything for God. And then other times his mind can be so earthly that he is stuck right there, that he can't get past the moment. And we see this time and time again. And I can tell you that's been my life time and time again. And so we're going to start off in Peter. And I just want to set up the story of when we first see Jesus interact with Peter. And you can see this all throughout the Gospels. I don't want to get you lost on where I'm about to paraphrase. So know that you can just turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and find this story. Um, but we first see Peter whenever Jesus just gets done preaching. It's the first uh, of his preaching ministry. And we see him walking beside the Sea of Galilee. And then we see Andrew and Simon, who is Peter. They're out fishing and they haven't caught anything. And they're professional fishermen. And then we see Jesus come up and interact with them. And he just simply, in the most polite way, says, cast out your net again. And this has to come off very weird for two professional fishermen. This is what they do for a life. I can only imagine the thought that they had of like, here's this guy just trying to tell us what to do. I do this every day, and we haven't caught anything. This isn't even the time in which we can catch fish. What does he know? And then they throw back out their net, and it says it was so overwhelming that they had to get help just to pull it back in. And after that, we see just the most simple invitation. Come and follow me. He says, I will make you fisher of men. And at once they drop their nets and follow. And although that sounds all great, if I'm being honest, I, the way that I read the text, I always put myself in the, the position of the person who's responding. And I'm just thinking, if this is my full-time job, I just met this dude less than five minutes ago, and he gave me two sentences. 
I ain't quitting my job. That's just me. I'm not quitting my job. But we see Peter's faithfulness already. When he didn't even know what was ahead, he just drops everything and follows Jesus. And then we get a little bit down the road. We see Peter gets to witness multiple miracles. He experiences many sermons that Jesus does live and in front of him. And we see him praise multiple times. We also see Peter rebuke multiple times. And that's what stands out. Peter is up and down. You're gonna see it so much in, in his story. But Peter is a man of passion. He lets his emotions drive him and he's just impulsive. Once he feels something, if he's got it on his mind, he's gonna do it. And so if we fast forward through a little bit of the gospel, we see right after Jesus fed the 5,000, he sends the disciples out in the boat and he tells them, go ahead, I'm gonna basically finish with the crowd. And then it says it's late in the night and then Jesus, well, he doesn't have a boat, so naturally he just walks on water. He just walks on a cross and it says the disciples are in the boat and they are sitting there and all of a sudden they see this shadow and they're like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And then just in that, someone acknowledges, no, that's Jesus. And then one of the most miraculous things happens. Again, Peter is someone who is driven by passion and he sees it and he just jumps at the moment. Lord, if that's you, call me to you. Can we pause right there? No one has ever walked on water. I don't know why Peter invited himself to do it. Again, in my mind, I'm like, you setting yourself up for failure. But we see in this moment that Jesus actually says, all right, come. And out of his faithfulness, his obedience, he walks on water. And this is incredible because he is the only man that we ever see do this. But immediately as we see just this divine moment, we also see so quickly the wind blows the waves go, and it says Peter began to doubt, and he falls, and the Lord grabs him, and he rebukes him then. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And again, I'm just inserting myself here, but if I'm the only one that got out the boat and tried, I think you should be talking to the other 11 over here, not just me. That's just, again, I'm like, Peter, Peter takes it quite a bit for being the one that stands out. But in that moment, again, he gets to experience something so divine simply because he's obedient. And then later on, we see Jesus is explaining a parable to the disciples. And let's be honest, none of them got it. If you look at the context of it, it says all of them were lost. And so Peter's the only one who's willing to just raise his hand like, uh, can you explain it? Like, I don't get it. And again, there, there's something with the relationship of Jesus and Peter. Because we see him again just kind of throw it at Peter of like, are you still so dull? Do you still not get it? And again, I'm just thinking, Peter's the only one that even had the guts to speak up. And yet he's rebuked again. And then you fast forward just a little bit more and we see after a conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And he lets them answer. And then he reiterates and says, who do you say I am? And don't miss it because this is one of the most divine moments we see. And it's Peter says, you are, not, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter is the first person to pro proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And even in it, Jesus acknowledges how divine this moment is. He said, blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. I tell you, 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Imagine if you were the first person after hundreds and thousands of years of them saying the Messiah is going to come. You're the first one that actually, out of divine intervention with, with the Father, you see it in front of you. You get to acknowledge it. That's Peter. Peter, somewhere in there, has this divine moment with God to where he's like, hey, you see it, acknowledge it. This is my son. But then just as, as we see that, we see right after this, Jesus, well, right after that, Jesus tells the disciples the plan. He predicts his death. He tells them that he must go and suffer many things, that he must be killed, and on the third day that he will be raised to life. And as quickly as we see Peter have this divine moment, we see Peter's mouth get him in trouble. Peter says, never, Lord, this shall not happen. And immediately Jesus rebukes him. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What a sharp transition. We go from you're the rock that I'm gonna build my church on to being called Satan. I read it quite a few scriptures and he's the only one aside from Satan himself that gets called Satan. <laughs> like that, that's harsh. But what we start to see is Peter is constantly wrestling somewhere between being led in the spirit to, to experience these divine moments and then being stuck in his humanity. And so if you're taking notes, my first point is this. Jesus meets Peter in his mess. He meets Peter while he is still just a lowly man, just a fisherman. He walks beside him and gets to see the ups and the downs. He rebukes him, he's teaching him, but it's so important that we see that he doesn't meet him at the end of Peter's ministry. When he's got it all together, when he's preaching to the thousands and converting people, he meets him in his mess. And so for anybody in this room that, that hasn't met him, that thinks that, hey, I gotta get myself together, there's so many of us that think that, hey, I got to get to a certain level of cleanliness before Jesus can come and walk beside me, before he can use me or even see me. And I want you to hear that he sees you in the middle of your mess. You may not be proud of it, but he's there. He, he is right there with you. And so to continue on, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. And right now, the Last Supper has taken place. And the betrayal was just mentioned by, uh, of what Judas will do. And I think it's so crazy that they all question, who, surely not me. None of the disciples could see themselves betraying Jesus. Jesus was such a good friend that even the betrayer blended in. I think that's so powerful. Because we have not only Judas who's going to betray him, but we also have Peter who's going to deny him. And yet all of them are asking, is it going to be me? Because he loves them that well. And so I just think about this. Where do we sit? Like, again, he loves the worst of us just as much as he loves the most faithful. You don't see any difference in the relationship. That's something to latch on to. So if we fast forward through towards a little bit of the end of Matthew chapter 26, we get to verse 31. 
And this is where we begin to see the story unfold. It says, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then again, Peter, his, his mouth is always ahead of him. He replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He's telling this to Jesus who just said, hey, you're gonna deny me. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. I think it's crazy that Jesus is telling Peter, you will betray me. And yet somewhere in their relationship, I imagine, is why Peter can't see it. Why? Because it doesn't make sense that I'm going to betray you, and yet you still love me like this. You still feed me. You still walk beside me. It doesn't make sense to keep me still in this inner circle and so close. And we get to see that play out immediately afterwards, because it says right after that, he takes Peter, James, and John, just three of the disciples, the inner circle, and they get to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is in the moments leading up to Jesus about to be crucified. And Jesus tells them, sit here and pray. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And it is here that we see Jesus cry out to the Father. Like, Lord, if this cup can be taken, then please. But all the more, your will be done. This is a very intimate moment with Jesus. That even though he says, Peter, you're going to betray me. I'm still gonna bring you. I'm still gonna have you right here. You're still my right-hand man. I think that just speaks so much to the relationship that Jesus walks beside someone that is still in their mess. And so as we get to verse 40, I think something stands out. Because he tells them, stay up and stay watch. But then he goes to the three and they're sleeping. And here Jesus rebukes Peter specifically. And he says, can't you stay up even for just one hour? And then what comes afterwards, I feel like is such a sharp warning that all of us can take in any situation of life. And that's in verse 41. It says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of my commentaries says that the temptation is to be unfaithful in the face of threatening circumstances confronting them. It's another warning that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's warning him, pray, because Peter, I've seen your spirit. It's strong. I've seen that you and your best can experience the divine, but I've also seen that when your flesh gets in the way, you are nothing more than mere human. I have seen that when your flesh is in the way, the battles that are in front of you, you will falter. He's telling them. And so I think it's just crazy that in the face of threats, he's, he's already warned them, you're gonna fail. And so as we continue on in the story, we see that now Judas is coming. After Jesus addresses the disciples for falling asleep three times, he says, hey, the moment has come. Get up, the moment is here. There's no more time. And then as we see Judas approach with uh, some of the armed soldiers to give Jesus away, 
We get to verse 50 and it says, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. That's a whole nother sermon. That he just looked at Judas who was coming to, to sell him out to the cross for 30 pieces of silver. And he says, do what you come to do, friend. I ain't calling nobody friend that's about to kill me. Uh, you, you're gonna get a whole lot of attitude from me. But I think it, it still speaks to just the magnifying character of Jesus. Of no matter what you do, he still sees you as his friend. And so then it says, the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. If you look in the other gospels, it is mentioned that it is in fact Peter who strikes the soldier. And immediately he's rebuked. In verse 52, it says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled to say it must happen in this way? There's so much to unpack in there. Because again, remember, Peter is the first one that gets to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. If you go back in the, the gospel, you also get to see that he gets to go up to the mountaintop and see Jesus transfixed. So he gets to see Jesus fully in all of his glory at one point. And yet in this moment, we see again, he's still caught up in the human concerns and not of God. Because if you, if you fast forward through it, you'll miss it. But what he's telling them, Peter, is put your sword down and stop trying to fight your battles in the flesh and know that I'm God. He's telling them, hey, you're still trying to fight things as if it's all in your control. And he's letting them know, if you do this, then the scriptures can't be fulfilled. I think another way of saying that is he's looking Peter dead in the eye and saying, if I don't do this, then who's going to save you, Peter? Who's going to save you? Because I've told you, you're going to turn your back on me. And if I don't meet this moment, then who's going to do it for you? You need this death too. And that's such a powerful moment because I think the biggest conflict with Peter is he has to be humble. If you look throughout his ministry early on, you see that he has this conflict of he sees the way that he can meet the needs of everything. He sees how the savior is going to be this powerful figure and he sees all the earthly things of how he's going to raise his kingdom, but he fails to ever see the bigger picture that God has. He fails to see the reality that Jesus is going to die on the cross, not just for the people that they're going to minister into. He's going to do it for the sinner that Peter is too. And it's crazy. And so as we get to the end of that, in verse 56, it says that as he was led away, all the disciples did, in fact, desert him and flee. They all left Jesus just as he predicted. And so when we pick back up in verse 69, it says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and we finally meet the moment. The girl says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he immediately denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. That's one. And then he went out to the gateway. I imagine to get away from the little girl who, who was just pointing at him like, I'm pretty sure that's him. And what does he find? Another servant girl who saw him and said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. This time with an oath. 
I do not know this man. That's two. And then after a little while, so finally he finds another space in the courtyard and he's just sitting there. And it says, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I do not know this man. And it says immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And it says immediately, he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter is met with the moment and he falls into the temptation. Although he's given multiple warnings, and I think that's something that we can look, look at in our own lives. If someone keeps warning you of something, you might wanna pay attention. They might see something that you don't see. Jesus was showing Peter a blind spot and he kept ignoring it. And when the moment came, he fell right into the temptation. But I think, again, this, this message is about Jesus as the friend of sinners. And so what we do see is Jesus walked beside Peter as a friend, knowing who Peter was. He walked beside him as a friend, knowing what Peter would do. He chose Peter knowing he would fall short. Again, he's fully man and fully God. He already knew all this about Peter. And when you know it, he still chose him as a friend. He still chose him to be in that inner circle. And so if you're taking notes, my next point is this. Jesus sees Peter beyond just his current circumstances. Jesus sees Peter beyond his current circumstances. You see that, that moment where Peter denies him, if we jump over to a different gospel, we go to Luke chapter 22, verse 61. It says that after the final denial, the Lord looked at Peter, and after the rooster crowed, so I imagine, what look did Peter see? At the third denial, it says he locked eyes with Jesus. What did he see? Because I know the look I would have gave him. I would have gave him some nasty grin of like, man, I told you you were going to do this. And then you still did it. I, I wouldn't have had any compassion. If I'm being honest with, with my humanity, I knew you were going to betray me. I gave you the warning, the chance to fix it. And you still did it. But then I want you to think again of what look do you think Peter was actually given? Because if we look at the character of God, we have to know that there is some compassion. I think the image that you have of Jesus in this moment speaks to what you see in your own failures. So what do you think Peter saw? What do you see when you mess up? Do you see the face of somebody who is compassionate and loving that is still welcoming you in? Or do you see the face of somebody who's just shaking their head? Nothing but shame and saying, I knew you'd fail me. Why did we even get here? And so again, I just imagine that the honest look was something of compassion, of really a charge of saying, Peter, buckle up because you got this. And the reason I say that is Again, if you look in Luke chapter 22, and we go backwards a little bit to verse 31 and 32. And this is the same story that we see take place in Matthew where Jesus tells Peter he will deny him. But the details are a little bit different in Luke's gospel. 
It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you out as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In this one, when he tells him he's going to deny him, it looks so different. Jesus knew who Satan was going after as he is fully God and fully man. And he prayed over the moment before it happened. He prayed for Peter. He didn't begin to, to get angry or fueled. He prayed for him because he knew what was to come. He knew that Peter had to be humbled to change. So the trial had to come. How many of you know, some of us, we have to go through some things or we're never going to change. I don't know about you, but there's certain things that I kept falling to. And until I had to pay the consequence or really realize where I was, it was never going to change. Peter is stuck in this, this mentality of I can fix it. I can be in control. God, if, if you just let me do me, then, then we can work it out. We see him constantly even rebuking Jesus of telling him, hey, you don't have to die. We got this. And so in this moment, I think it's simple, as simple as that. Peter had to be humbled to change. Sometimes the trial is sent just to humble us. But I think what stands out is this. Satan had to ask permission. Satan had to ask permission. So have hope that anything you're going through, it's already been brought before God. Because Satan cannot work without permission. Satan himself had to ask. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I think that's so powerful because here we're about to see it. God didn't cause the harm to happen. He didn't force Peter to go in and sin or force him to, to deny him. But we do see that he already knew. We see that he already told him and so if Jesus, who is connected directly to the Father, pray, prayed you up, that should give the ultimate comfort. He prays for Peter, saying, I have already seen your worst moment, and I also see what will happen beyond this. I'm going to use this, Peter. He gives him hope. He's telling him, before it even happens, you're going to fail. I've already prayed for you. And not if, but when you turn, when you turn back to me, we're going to use this and it's going to strengthen so many others. So for some of you, you're stuck in a trial and maybe you can grab hold of hope from right here that Jesus knows where you're at, but he also has a plan. You can't thwart Jesus plan. There is nothing you can do that he doesn't already know is going to happen. And so trust that even though you've messed up in that moment, there's a bigger plan in the same way that he tells Peter, we're going to use this. And so this had to happen, or we continue to get an, an immature Peter who thinks that he's in control, that thinks his strength is greater than it is. He needed to know that Jesus, that he needed Jesus and not the other way around. His flesh was weak, but until he understood that, he, he wouldn't be able to move beyond it. He wouldn't be able to use, be used in his weakness. So Jesus sees what comes after the circumstances. And so as we kind of go into the last point, we're going to hop over to John. 
because John's gospel is the only one that gives us really this final piece. Uh, this is after Jesus has been crucified. We see he's been raised and he's already come to the disciples. But in this moment, if we go to chapter 21 in John, we see Peter and some of the disciples. And it felt the need to, to distinguish that Peter was going fishing. And I don't know, it could be just used to set up the story of where Peter was and where Jesus was for what's to come. But I think it is worth mentioning that when we see Peter after the moment where he fell, he's back to what he was doing before. And I think it's so ironic that how often do we fail when we go back to exactly what Jesus has called us out of? We go right back to the thing that, that held us. And so maybe you've been stuck in some type of addiction and you've been brought free of that. Why is it that when we suddenly get shook, we try and go back to it for the comfort? Jesus has brought some of us out of unhealthy relationships, out of terrible places. And then in one failure, we look back and say, you know what? I tried. I didn't get it, so I'm just gonna go back. Why do we give up so easy? We will give so many things a thousand tries, and yet in our faith, sometimes we'll only give it one. There's some of us who, we give Jesus one chance. And not that he messes up, we mess up and then we turn away. That makes no sense to me. But why is it so hard for us to remember why, why he called us away and what he called us to? So continuing on to, to just set up the story, in this final moment, we see Jesus is on the shore and Peter and the disciples are out in the boat. They're fishing and they can't see that it is Jesus on the shore. And he just calls out to them, friends, have you caught anything? He's Jesus, he already knows. And they're like, no. And so he says, all right, throw your net back out. And somewhere after this, not Peter, but John recognizes that that's Jesus. And as he says this to Peter, we see again the impulse immediately click in. And it says he jumped out of the boat. And we have to imagine he's somewhere about 100 yards or so out. And it says he jumps out of the boat immediately and he begins to swim to shore. And so we still see this passion growing. Even though he's messed up, we don't know exactly what all he's navigated since that moment, but we see him rush back to Jesus. And it says as he arrives, that again, they had caught so many fish whenever he told them to throw their net back out that they couldn't even haul it all in. I don't think it's coincidence that this image is exactly what happened when he first calls Peter to be a disciple. And so as they approach the shore, we see that Jesus already has breakfast waiting for him. Jesus is the homie. Like, my man always has food ready whenever a heavy conversation is coming. Like, I don't think, it, like, he has breakfast waiting, even though they're out fishing. He's just cooking it up. And then finally, we get to verse 15 in John chapter 21. And this is the moment where Peter and Jesus finally come face to face again. And it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you still love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. A very simple response. And then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And in this moment, it says Peter was hurt. And it doesn't say it, but I imagine the third time it brings him back to the realization that I denied Jesus three times. And here's the third affirmation. I imagine it hurts him because he's brought back to the moment where he failed. And right now, Jesus isn't bringing any of it up. He's simply saying, do you love me? And so finally, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. And Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And then finally, Jesus just said, feed my sheep. It finishes off saying, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he simply said to him, follow me. My third point is this. Jesus restores and calls Peter to greater. In this interaction with, with Peter, we see again, there's three denials and there's three affirmations. Jesus speaks to Peter directly and asks, do you love me? And he makes it very simple. Yes, then do what I've called you to do. He reinstates him into ministry. He doesn't go into the details of like, are you sure? Hey, we need to do this process to get you back. He doesn't loathe it over his head. He simply gives him the call. Go and do what I've called you to do. Do you love me? Yes. Then step into what I have for you. Don't sit here in this shame. Step into what I have called you to. Do you love me? Yes. Then go and grow my kingdom. Peter had to go through it so he could testify to others. And if you read on, he does amazing things. If you've been in our Sunday school class, you get to see an Acts where he's healing people and just, there's people flocking to just his shadow to be healed. We see God use him in amazing ways. But what if Peter had been left in shame of being seen by his worst moment? The denial. Thank God that Jesus forgives. That he tells him like, hey, I forgive you, now walk in freedom. This passage gives me so much hope because it lets me know that although I may fail with a repentant heart, similar to what Peter has, there's still hope for me. That Jesus isn't gonna hold it over your head, but that he's looking at you just saying, hey, come back to me, turn back, and the plan will still happen. I have so much more waiting for you. You're still gonna do great things, but if you get stuck in this moment, what a shame it would be. Jesus didn't set up a year-long plan of shame. He didn't leave him in the self-loathing or anything else. He said, you are forgiven, now go. As simple as that. I hope you know that when you come to the Lord out of a truly repentant heart, not just the, hey, I got caught, God forgive me, but truly out of like, Lord, I know this grieves you. Truly something where you, you don't wanna carry the weight and you know that you have grieved the Lord, 
And so I think of this, are you stuck thinking that you can't be used because you failed? Because you betrayed God. Because we can look at how Jesus responds to Peter and know the character of God. We can see that it's compassion, it's love. We see the repentant heart of, of Peter and then we see the call to more. And so maybe you've turned and maybe you shame God in your own thoughts. Will you run back to what you know? Or will you turn back to the Lord and trust his character and plan? You see, what we don't see is Jesus just glazed over the sin. We see very directly that he addresses it, he forgives it, and then he uses it as a catalyst to send him out. And so as I just look through all of this and I recap the night, there's a couple of things that just stand out to me. So to recap, I look at this. Jesus meets you in your mess in the same way that he meets Peter in his. You don't have to have it all together. Jesus is right there. He's given you the invitation to walk beside him no matter where you are. There is no measure of the best of these and the worst of these. He's a friend of all because we're all sinners. We all fall short. Jesus sees you beyond your sin. I'm not naive enough to, to think that all of us are walking in in just a place of grace. We all have some struggling sin that's just in front of us that we're just wrestling with and we just think that, you know what? Like God, God sees me here. There's no way he's gonna use me. And I want you to know he sees you beyond just where you are right now. He is the almighty, he is all knowing. He doesn't just see you for where you are right now, but he sees for where he can take you. If you're just willing to, to go to him, to walk beside him and submit to him. And finally, Jesus restores and calls you to something greater. If you are stuck in that sin, know that there's redemption for you. That's the hope of the gospel in itself, is that he died for us while we were still sinners every single one of us. But then there's hope in that because he died on the cross, that we can repent, we can be restored, and we can be used to go out and do something so much greater. So what do we do with this? I just have two things for you. First, ask yourself what failure are you holding on to that God is ready to redeem? Many of us have something that we're just sitting with. We have something that we're like, you know what, it's too big. And whether you see it in Peter, whether you see it in Zacchaeus, or so many other characters in here, just know that he's ready to redeem you. There is forgiveness for the shortcomings, but you have to bring it to him. You have to give it over to him. And the final thing is, it's real simple. And that's just to simply know that there is hope for the sinner. There is hope in the fact that he's gonna redeem you. If you come to him, he will redeem you. He will forgive you. And we won't look back on that moment, but we'll see the greatness in which God can work through you. We'll see his power shine. And so as we go into 120 seconds, I just want you to ponder on those thoughts. So as I pray, I wanna leave you with that. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for just 
the image of your grace that we see through Peter. We thank you for meeting him in this moment. We thank you for meeting him in his mess and then just walking beside him in the divine moments and even in the low moments of humanity. Lord, I ask that you would begin to just reveal in each and every one of us, what do we see? What face do we see looking back at us? Do we see an image that is truly accurate of your character? Do we see what we truly think of you? And so God, work in the spirits of everyone in this room. Allow them to wrestle with this and allow them to submit it into your hands. Amen.